This is an Oldest Stories bonus episode. With the close of the Israel series, we went pretty quickly through the actual fall of Jerusalem. It is, in fairness, a fairly minor data point in the larger historical picture compared to the events which preceded it and made it basically inevitable. At the same time, it was not a great day for the people involved, all things considered. And it just so happens that ancient Near Eastern literature already had a genre existing that was nothing but poems of people being sad about destroyed cities. We looked at one of them a few years ago in the bonus episode Lament for Ur, slotted in between episodes 55 and 56. So tradition tells us that the prophet Jeremiah used this format to construct a poem, which, following the traditional Mesopotamian scheme, would usually be called either Lament for Jerusalem, or, following the insipid, it would be called How Lonely Sits the City. But because the canonizers of scripture had long since forgotten that this was, in fact, an entire genre, it's merely called the Book of Lamentations. Now, this book doesn't have to have been written by Jeremiah himself. There is little doubt, though, that it was composed and popularized shortly after the fall of Jerusalem, during the Babylonian exile, and does represent the genuine memories of someone who either lived through the events or at most spoke to many who did. Since we're still kind of sort of still in the mid-500s in our timeline, and we have recently looked at both the destruction event and the closely related themes in the book of Job, that makes this a perfect old story to read through now. And as I used to do, though I haven't in a while, I'm going to basically be reading through the whole thing. Lamentations is short enough that we won't have to skip anything unless my comments get out of hand, which sometimes they do. Anyway, now the structure of Lamentations, much like the laments of the Mesopotamian cities, is multiple semi-independent poems. In this case, each of the poems is a Hebrew acrostic, or the middle one is a series of Hebrew acrostics. The chapters of Scripture are in many books of the Bible, somewhat arbitrary divisions added much later, but in the case of Lamentations, we really do start anew with each poem, though of course they add to and inform each other in sequence. In the tradition of the genre, each of the sections is written in a different voice, and it was likely intended to be performed by a choir of five different people, each taking a different section. The effect of this would be to emphasize that the destruction of the city was a thing which affected the whole community, each individual having a different perspective on the tragedy, but all sharing the tragedy in common with each other. These five voices do not mean that there were five different authors. It remains a unitary work, since that's just how an ancient lament worked. I won't try to actually make different voices this time. I'm not actually as great a voice actor as I sort of would like to be, so you're going to be free of the literal voices this time, but... 
With the transition of each chapter, do keep the whole voice thing in mind. Now, if you've ever read this book in a religious context, I invite you to listen to the historical voice of the prophet as he weeps over the lost city. And for everyone, I encourage you to ask yourself, just how developed is Yahwism only 30 or 50 years after Josiah had begun patronizing scribal schools, which of course those schools managed to live on well after the city itself had fallen to ruin. First Poem How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night, with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Now, just have to put a comment in here. Historically speaking, it's not Judah's friends who've dealt treacherously with her. From a political standpoint, every single major power war between Judah and the Assyrians, Egyptians, and Babylonians was started by Judah, who freely entered into covenants with the Assyrians only to betray those covenants and then the final two sacks were the result of Judah revolting against the Babylonians. Of course, the Judah-Egypt war was started by Josiah. And so these people who had a habit of treating their friends relatively well, that being the great powers who generally let you get along pretty good if you did what you, they told you to, they didn't treat Judah very well. I wonder why. Theologically as well, the final few kings, from Ahaz and Manasseh down to the last rebellious kings, selected their gods and appeared to have honored them, as far as history was concerned, and their reigns were quite nice, possibly because of it. It's only the Yahwist perspective of deferred vengeance that justified all the bad things occurring during Hezekiah and Josiah's reigns as the fault of Judah pursuing other gods. And yet here again, the thing that brought them judgment was not actually going after other gods, per se, but Judah dealing treacherously with her national god through spiritual adultery. Of course, Jeremiah, and I will call our author Jeremiah just for convenience sake, Jeremiah clearly doesn't see it this way. He's hurting, and it's completely natural to find blame in external powers, either bastard false gods or the great international powers. He'll see a great deal of fault in Jerusalem soon enough, but just keep in mind the perspective of our narrator here. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper. 
because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. For the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her afflictions and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old. When her people fell into the hands of the foe, and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Now all this could have been pulled directly out of the Mesopotamian laments in terms of poetic language. I mean, this is, of course, because the underlying emotion and cultural context for that emotion is all quite similar. Where we might break down in uncontrollable weeping, Jeremiah and other Near Easterners desire to beautify the sentiment as much as possible. Now, of course, all this poetry probably comes after all the weeping. They're not hyper-stoic poetic superman. They're just channeling their pain into something a little more beautiful than, say, a Kurt Cobain song. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they've seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. Essentially, this is a condemnation of Judah's harlotry. God wanted them to do two things, only have one God and no tolerance for ecumenicism, and to only have one people, with zero tolerance for miscegenation. Nowadays, many among Christians and some among the Jews completely reject this sort of intolerance. And while the New Testament does alter our understanding of who is now the people of God since the scattering of Israel and the Great Commission, the necessity to be of the world but not within it to cleanse our own little promised land of Canaanite harlotry and worldly influences remains unchanged, even if it sometimes hurts people's feelings. Of course, some scriptural texts are more concerned about not hurting people's feelings, and there are times when it's no good to be mean for the sake of meanness. But when God chooses to speak through Jeremiah... He does not do so in order to spare any feelings or attempt any diplomacy. No, instead we hear, All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on his day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all day long. 
My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. With all this emphasis on the filthiness of Jerusalem, we have to ask, is this, or at least some of this, the perception of other nations? When the Jews arrived in Babylon, were they treated with something akin to racial animus, which often centers around disgust? Or is this just... Jeremiah deciding that because of their spiritual harlotry, they are morally filthy in the sight of God. Now, the second's almost certainly at play, but I wonder as to the first, without having any firm answer here. Babylon was certainly very open to foreigners in this time, at least as official policy. And we know even outside the Bible that their government accepted foreigners to a certain extent, but what did the Avalridge Babylonian on the street think about these rebels who rejected Marduk? The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young men and my young women have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me, because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. They heard my groaning, and yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you, and deal with them as you've dealt with me because of my transgressions. For my groans are many, and my heart is faint. And at the close here, Jeremiah's focus has now fully shifted from blaming the faithlessness of others to the faithlessness of his own people, but keeping in mind that he still really doesn't like these other people. I think moving from an external locus of control to an internal one is part of the process of assimilating grief, according to modern psychology. But of course, quite a lot of modern psychology was known on a folk level for as long as people have been observing other people, even if they didn't have fancy words for it. Second poem. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Notice as we read through this that 
Jeremiah casts back to the shared heritage of Israel and Judah together, despite the fact that no tie has been honored for centuries at this point. This and the later mentions don't prove that there was at one point a unified kingdom and shared heritage among the nation, but it does prove that he believed there was such a thing, indicating he had access to some sort of scripture or tradition along biblical lines. Keep an eye out in this chapter for more such biblical references, all of which would be odd if he were in the generation which had invented them whole cloth. The Lord has swallowed without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he's broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He's cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He's withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He's burned like a burning fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He's bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a foe, and he's killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He's swallowed up Israel. He's swallowed up all its palaces. He's laid in ruin its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He's ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more and her prophets find no visions from the Lord. Jeremiah sees in all this destruction the hand of God. But we can also see pretty clearly that either the destruction suffered by the last generations in Israel and Judah was objectively frightening, or that the survivors believed it to have been so. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They've thrown dust over their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, Where's bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what can I liken you, that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can hear you? Your prophets 
have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Now, prophets are something often misunderstood in a modern context. We often merge the concept with Greek and other types of prophets whose main focus is on foretelling the future. In an Old Testament context, however, a prophet isn't so much a future teller as he is a consequence teller. Now, those who've studied the prophets know this, but what this is what Jeremiah sees as particularly pernicious of the false prophets. A true prophet, in Jeremiah's mind, would look at the sins of a people and announce that those sins will lead, as a natural consequence, to destruction. Indeed, this makes the four counselors in the book of Job, insisting that his suffering must be the result of sin, all prophets in their own way. They were, as it turns out, subtly mistaken, which is why true prophets must come from the true God. But Jeremiah's concern is not with overly strict false prophets, but insufficiently strict ones, promising that the people don't have sins and, as a consequence, will be blessed. Promises which prove to be, in the final calculation, a bit mistaken. All who pass along their way cut their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss and they gnash their teeth. They cry, we have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we've longed for. Now we have it. Now we see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried out to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? And this, as far as we can tell, is not poetic hyperbole, but things which actually occurred during the siege, including the mothers eating their own children. In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You've killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. Now, the third chapter is by far the longest, comprising three 22-verse sections together. 
and it is different in character than what has come before. In a way, having displayed his mastery of the lamentation, Jeremiah now ups his game by adding elements of theodicy and messianic deliverance, things not usually so prominent in the genre. Frankly, it's pretty impressive, especially since most Hebrew poetry fails to translate well into English. I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He's driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He's made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove in my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is, so I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now this here, this mention of hope, this is where Jeremiah really starts to do something unusual in a Near Eastern religious context. This is also, not coincidentally, the only part of the book that usually gets turned into verse-of-the-day material. Structurally, we're at the end of the first set of 22 verses, so it makes poetic sense for a shift of some sort to occur, though in the context of the desolation we've seen so far, the ray of hope does seem all the brighter. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Their new Every morning, great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good for them who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good for one who should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth, let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, 
and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the lowest high, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. Structurally, the shift into the third section of this chapter isn't quite on the 44th line where we might expect it. But with the start of Jeremiah's prayer of repentance at line 42, we enter yet another phase of this religious work. For all that the previous section is so often used in verse-of-the-day material, this last part is what most people really need for the health of their soul. The prayer continues. You've wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity, You've wrapped yourself in a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You've made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies hope in their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction from our eyes flow with rivers of tears because the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I've been haunted like a bird from those who were my enemies, without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You've taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You've seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You've heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. Their lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You! will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. All judgment, all vengeance, belongs to the Lord, not to man. 
But from start to finish, Scripture tells us that this vengeance will come upon the unrighteous sooner or later. And we forget that at our own peril. On to the fourth poem. The voice has clearly changed here. No longer a lone voice, but a reflection on the depth of the fall. From what Jeremiah remembers of the good days in his youth to the wretchedness of destruction. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer the breast they nurse to their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches of the wilderness. And the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. This, at least, is an interesting thought. Is it better to be completely destroyed in a moment, or slowly destroyed in a way that's felt for generations to come? As is so often the case, the greater tribulations are reserved for the people of God, while mere judgment comes to the wretched outsider. This will eventually be a consistent theme of Jewish thought, but this is extremely early. The people of Judah, at least, haven't had a long period of suffering since the days of Egypt. Yet Jeremiah is already seeing an extremely long tribulation in their future, which as his predecessor Isaiah taught, was in order to refine souls, not merely to punish. Though the higher nobility of this suffering is naturally lost on Jeremiah, who's currently, you know, actually suffering. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. Their beauty of, the, of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It's become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He pulled out, poured out hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sin of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away! Unclean! People cried at them. Away! Away! Do not touch! So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, They shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. 
no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us in the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. We will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, you will punish. You will uncover your sins. Note here at the end that Jeremiah is particularly bitter at Judah's neighbors, Aram, Edom, and the minor desert peoples. Not for any particular reason that we can tell, he just seems upset that they weren't destroyed, probably because they didn't join the rebellion while Judah was destroyed. Then, this last chapter, in the true spirit of lamentation, leaves us on a pretty down note. It's probably the most important chapter, as it historically is perhaps the most blunt on the conditions of Judah, and theologically reminds us that prayers aren't always answered in our own time. Indeed, Jeremiah would not live to see his final prayer answered here, even after we assume a lifetime of faithful endurance. Remember, O oh Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be brought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Of all the novel theological concepts in Lamentation, compared to the Mesopotamian laments, this intergenerational transfer of guilt and judgment is probably the biggest. Many modern creeds talk about individual judgment as a way of rejecting the Catholic doctrine of original sin, but scripture is clear that the guilty are not always punished in this life, and the righteous often go without reward until after death. While we saw people wondering about that in the various Mesopotamian theodicies, it seems to have been largely assumed that rewards and punishments would be doled out by the gods in this life and the next, according to piety. I wonder if this novelty of Jewish thought is part of what has caused the Jewish people to endure so much trial, when so many other cultures and faiths saw themselves erased by the hardships of history. Anyway, Jeremiah concludes, 
Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is uh, hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion. Young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. A dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. A bit of a downer, that last bit, and I wish that more Verse of the Day programs would put that last bit down there. Far too many Christians assume that God is always here to lift us up and forget his refining fire. But all in all, this is a beautiful expression of artistically arranged pain, and we should keep in mind through all of the analysis and theology that this was a real person's expression of his real pain some 2,600 years ago. Separated from us by a vast gulf of time and culture, the value in all these oldest stories is in reminding us that the people of the ancient world were people just like us. They weren't fools or monkeys or statistical elements or words on a page, but lives as rich and deep as our own. Anyway, that's all for today. Thank you for listening.